This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Through her best-selling novels, her sell-out stand-up comedy routines, and the eight series of her hit radio show, Natalie Haynes has become a true champion for the classics. Her novels, The Children of Jocasta and A Thousand Ships, retold the Greek myths of Oedipus and Antigone and of the Trojan War, respectively, reshaping the stories by placing women at their heart. However, this is far from mere whimsy on Haynes's part. As she states in Pandora's Jar, her 2020 collection of essays about women in Greek myth, this is not an innovation, but an act of restitution. Women were prominent in the original tales, but had been relegated to the sidelines by centuries of patriarchal retelling. So it should come as no surprise that her latest novel, Stone Blind, reveals a new side to the ancient and seemingly familiar myth of Perseus and the Gorgon Medusa. Not only does it put male power under the spotlight, but it explores how we create monsters out of our fear of the unknown. Best of all, for fans of Natalie Haynes' Stands Up for the Classics, she narrates the audiobook version of Stoneblind herself. Gorgonaeon. I see you. I see all those whom men call monsters. And I see the men who call them that. Call themselves heroes, of course. I only see them for an instant. Then they're gone. But it's enough. Enough to know that the hero isn't the one who's kind or brave or loyal. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, he is monstrous. And the monster? Who is she? She is what happens when someone cannot be saved. This particular monster is assaulted, abused and vilified. And yet, as the story is always told, she is the one you should fear. She is the monster. We'll see about that. Natalie Haynes, welcome to My Life in Books. Hello there. So, in Stoneblind, you are retelling the story of Medusa, the Gorgon and Perseus very much from her point of view and highlighting that she is a victim of crime. Absolutely. It's a source of great irritation to me that Medusa gets, she's been sort of turned into the iconic Greek myth monster in the modern world. I think she's probably the most recognisable because of the snaky hair. Um, You know, she's the logo of Versace. She's everywhere. And yet she isn't a monster She's a survivor of sexual violence. So she is raped by the god Poseidon. And this attack takes place in the temple of Athene, or Athena, if you prefer her Roman name. And the the way that the goddess responds to this violation of her space isn't to punish Poseidon, the perpetrator of the attack. It's to punish Medusa and to give her snakes for hair. And this story is in Ovid's Metamorphoses, and that's the longest version of it that we have, although it appears in earlier sources. There's a mention of of it in Pindar, for example. But it's always really bothered me that she gets turned into a monster when, in fact, she is quite literally the first monstered rape survivor in literature, I think, certainly in 
in Greek literature. And so I felt somebody should kind of stand up for that and say, well, you know, it's not okay actually to just call her a monster. She isn't a monster. She's someone to whom a terrible thing happens. And the response of the figures around her, the deities around her who have responsibility in some ways, you would think, to sort of police their own, is to assault her a second time. So she's one of three Gorgons. She has two sisters and they're both immortal and she is mortal. So she's much more kind of fragile than everyone in her immediate kind of company. And yet she's also more prone to change. So, you know, if you're immortal, you're kind of unchanging, I think. So it gave me a chance to write about how it might be for that kind of interaction to occur between a young girl who who changes beyond recognition overnight in that she gets snakes for hair. But also that's obviously in some ways a metaphor for how we all change when we're young adults. And uh, I'm sure plenty of people who cared about us when we were eight would say we were unrecognisable from <laughs> in our teens. So I guess it was a way of kind of looking at that and looking at the way that society, I'm afraid, has always punished women who speak out about having been assaulted. Yes, victim blaming continues well into the 21st century. Yeah, I'd um, love it to be out of date. <laughs> you could go, oh, why have you brought this back again? And I'd be like, I'm so sorry, I'm just a bit old school. Said, yeah, no, worryingly, it seems to be as in date as ever. And as you say, the gods, you would hope, in their wisdom, in inverted commas, <laughs> would police this. But no, they are the perpetrators. And you show very clearly how Medusa is in a loving home. Her two sisters are scared for her rather yes. than of her. And yet that stands in direct contrast to the chaos, to the the moodiness, to the, well, soap opera bitchiness of <laughs> the gods in Mount Olympus. I know. <laughs> I'm so childish. <laughs> um, but I took that from Homer. It's not my invention to make the gods petty and petulant. They're like that in the Iliad in particular, uh, more so than in the Odyssey even. And they squabble the whole time and they behave. I mean, when, when people ask me to kind of explain it, I say they're basically, it's like imagining a toddler with superpowers. They have absolutely no sense of moral rights or wrongs. They have no sense of self-control. What they basically have is the capacity to snatch at things that they want and then smash it or throw it aside when they've got it because they don't want it anymore. Um, and disappointingly, some of those things would be human beings. <laughs> so what you get is this sense of gods who there's no limits on their powers except for other gods. And in a way, it's sort of a terrible punishment. Obviously, it's incredibly freeing to be able to write characters like that who have no consideration whatsoever for the consequences of their actions. But the more time I spend writing them, they are a joy to write because those scenes are always really funny. But they're very, you know, sort of emotionally quite empty after a while. And, and I end up feeling more and more like it's not the best thing to be immortal in this Greek myth world. They are almost caricatures of the worst aspects of human nature. And I, I suppose that's how I've always seen them. Right. Hera is like some scantily clad, jealous wife terminator going round bumping off Zeus's concubines and illegitimate children and Athene is so purely a chip off her father Zeus's block that though she's the goddess of wisdom she is also the most petty petulant spoilt princess she is i'm afraid <laughs> and you capture that wonderful i'm so sorry i do love her that's the thing i absolutely love her 
And I know there are people who've read Stone Blind and who've just been like, oh, I hate Athena now. And you're like, oh, no, that wasn't my ambition at all. Because I love her all the way through, no matter how appallingly she behaves. And there are moments when it's really painful to write, you know, because she does do some awful, awful things, not least to Medusa. But I find her just a really interesting proposition because she's so complicated and yet at the same time she's incredibly simple. As you say, she's the goddess of wisdom, so she's definitely the smart one in the room at any given time. She's paying attention in a way that almost no one else is. You know, Zeus isn't paying attention. He's just looking for the next woman to seduce or attack. Hera isn't paying attention to everything. She's just looking at what Zeus is doing. And so there's quite a, a sense of limited focus on most of their parts. But with Athene, she's paying attention everywhere. And when she doesn't see things, which happens in an encounter with Hephaestus in my book, it's it's largely because she's choosing to ignore them or she considers them sort of beneath her notice. And so in a way that the harder bits of the book to write were when she was in conversation with Perseus, because although those scenes are pretty funny, I hope, because she has absolutely no patience with him at all. You know, by her standards, he comes across as an actual card-carrying idiot, which, to be fair, we all would, you know, because obviously she's the goddess of wisdom, <laughs> but she hasn't got a great deal of time for him, it's fair to say. But trying to find a way for those two sort of categories of being to communicate with one another, you know, when I started out, it's like, oh, these scenes will be fun to do. And I knew if I could get there, they would be. But at the beginning, I was thinking, what? Asking her to care about Persis, it's like asking me to kind of negotiate with an ant. Humans only live for a minute as far as gods are concerned. So why should she care? What's, you know, it's not worth her investment. So you kind of have to be literally physically in front of her at a point when she could do something to change your fate one way or the other. Or she, she'll just have lost interest in you by the time you, you could be crying out for help. <laughs> Absolutely nothing from her. So, yes. Well, and Perseus does need her help. You portray him as a vicious little thug and pretty damn incompetent. We've been led to believe through 2,000 years of translations that Perseus is this great Greek hero mm. who, uh, who goes off <laughs> on an impossible challenge and you portray him as pretty much worse than useless and... <laughs> He is also Athene's half-brother, so she's really stuck with him. Yeah, she's not delighted when that is brought to her attention. <laughs> a perfect example, though, of things that she definitely knows but chooses to ignore because, you know, she for sure knows that they both have Zeus as a father, but she doesn't like to think of herself as being in any way related to some puny mortal like Perseus. But yeah, I, Perseus is a really interesting figure because he enters the story of the Gorgons quite late. We have lots and lots of examples in visual arts of Gorgons and Gorgonea, or the singular is a Gorgoneon, so just the heads of Gorgons. And, and these exist from really early in Greek art. In fact, in almost every culture, you'll get sort of extreme or monstrous or grotesque faces. So we don't actually have loads of evidence of Perseus until relatively late on in the ancient Greek world. And what we do have is quite ambivalent relative to the treatment of other Greek heroes in the same sort of media. So, for example, there's a vase painting in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. It's a hydria, so it's a, a water jug. It's about half a metre tall. And it shows Perseus in the act of killing Medusa. And he's wearing shoes that belong to the god Hermes. He's wearing the cap of darkness that belongs to the god Hades. He's holding the harpe, which is a curved sword that belongs to his father Zeus. And he's getting advice from Athene, who's standing behind him. 
And the scene is incredibly upsetting, actually. This version of Medusa doesn't have snakes for hair. She just looks like a young woman asleep. And this, what it looks like is kind of what it is. It looks like a man trying to behead a sleeping girl while somebody encourages him. And that, that just seemed to me that you could look at this scene in two ways. One is a demigod who has the assistance of all these other deities, the shoes from Hermes, the hat from Hades, the help from Athene, the sword from Zeus, because he is the son of Zeus. So an undeniably high status figure. But the other way of looking at it, or the other part of the scene that you can see in exactly the same way, is just how helpless is this young man that these gods have to line up to help mm. him? You know, that one god isn't enough. Odysseus manages to get home from Troy with the help, basically, of just Athene, even while Poseidon is working against him the entire time. Look at Heracles, Hercules, to give him his Roman name, constantly tormented by Hera, and, you know, has to do all those labours. Here's the most popular character from Greek myth to appear on vase paintings from ancient Greece. And you compare that with this vase painting of Perseus killing Medusa. And there's an even more viscerally horrible one in the British Museum that shows the aftermath of her being killed by him with her blood flowing. And it, it's just, I don't know, perhaps I'm overreading it, but I feel like there's a, a really definite sense of ambivalence in the ancient world about how, Medusa is treated and there's nowhere more visible than in these two vase paintings. And you further undercut the glory of Perseus's quest when you write about his encounter with the Grii, the... Oh, the old ladies of the sea. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. There the are three old ladies who share one eye and one tooth. Yes. And Perseus doesn't really come out too well from that, does he? He doesn't come out of it well at all. I'm afraid that scene is a little bit revolting, for which I apologise. It's quite hard to have people sharing an eye uh, and indeed a tooth without um, things getting decidedly a bit much for the squeamish. So sorry about that. But yeah, no, I think that's the first time we kind of see Perseus in action, trying to make his quest, which is to bring back the head of a gorgon, but not to rescue Andromeda, which I know is the version that most people know, because that's what happens in the film Clash of the Titans in 1981. <laughs> and I'm obviously a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen too. But actually the rescuing of Andromeda from a sea monster is a side quest in our ancient sources. Mm. He goes on the quest to bring back the head of a gorgon, as he does in my novel, because a petulant king has asked him for the head of a gorgon. And not unusually in Greek myth and in many other myth cycles, a hero has to go on a quest because someone sends him. He doesn't get to go, well, I'm not sure this is a very good idea, or that doesn't sound very humane, could we try something else? And so, yeah, we do get this sense of, of Perseus in that scene with the Graii, that he is afraid of them. He's disgusted by them with some justification, but his response is, is pretty cool. But that when it comes to it, when it's a real crisis, he is Athena's half-sibling after all, you know, because he does think of the right thing to do. He's panicking and he's, you know, entirely grossed out by it. But he does work out what he has to do and he does it completely ruthlessly, which is... You know, I, I don't think I set out to do it, but I realised once I'd finished it, I had done it. As the book goes on, Perseus does become more and more like Athene, more ruthless, more destructive, less humane. And so as, as they spend more time together at cross purposes, neither of them really understanding what the other one is saying, inexplicably they are somehow starting to mirror one another. The book is very much a consideration of the nature of power. You mentioned Cassiope and Andromeda. Cassiope has 
power and respect because she is utterly beautiful. She is the most beautiful woman on earth. And yet, when she becomes enthralled by it, when she compares herself to the Nereids, the the, the beautiful sea nymphs, and says that she's even more beautiful than them, Mm. it becomes her weakness. It It, does. It becomes her fatal flaw. It does. Cassiope is a really, really interesting figure because she has all this power. And in our ancient sources, she's very much treated as it's one of many, many, many cases of hubris, where a mortal compares herself to a goddess or a mortal man compares himself to a god. And the human being always comes off really badly. And so that's a, a sort of noble tradition of Greek myth. But actually, as I get older, of course, I become more and more sympathetic to Cassiope. And so f- my version of her doesn't consider herself beautiful because she's so arrogant, although she most Mm. certainly is arrogant. She considers herself incredibly beautiful and says those words because she knows that she's mortal and her beauty is beginning to fade. And and it's the sort of horror of the incredibly beautiful as they sort of gradually become less beautiful that I thought she might be trying to avoid. You know, we have this ideal in our minds of the perfect 20th century film beauty. Of course, it's Marilyn Monroe, or if she's not your kind of thing, then maybe it's James Dean. It's no accident that they both died young before the ravages of time could allow us to see how they would have aged. There's something we really value in youth and beauty together that we just don't value in an older version of beauty, at least not always. And so, yeah, my version of Cassiope is is afraid of that. She's afraid of her own future. And, and you juxtapose that with Medusa, who has a huge amount more power when she becomes a full Gorgon and can yes. turn people to stone. And yet she has no agency anymore. Yes. I Again, this is one of those things. I'd written a chapter about Medusa in my nonfiction book in Pandora's Jar, And when I came to write that chapter, I I most certainly knew less about her than I should have done, although happily by the end, I knew quite a lot. And I was kind of hunting around trying to find somebody writing about the kind of power that she has. We all know she can turn you to stone with just her glance. But it's like, well, how do you control that power? And there was just nothing anywhere. And I thought, you know, is there a story where she kills somebody by accident or anything and hunted and hunted? I couldn't find a story where she killed anyone while she's alive. You know, Mm. she's used to kill people after she's been killed herself. But I couldn't find, and I was like, why are we all afraid of her? You know, if anything, she's gone to this enormous amount of trouble to not kill us. So so to be honest, currently she's top of my list of monsters I would like to meet if that's how we're gonna define her. And so, yeah, it seemed to me a, a part of her story that had just been overlooked. And it seemed especially weird because As I say, we've got her story in Ovid's Metamorphoses, but that also has the story of somebody else who can turn something animate into the same inanimate object over and over again. And that's Midas, who obviously anything he touches turns to gold. And the question of how does he deal with that power that can't be switched off is the entire point of the story. It's like he turns a twig to gold. He turns a clod of earth to gold. He turns some food to gold, he tries to drink wine and it turns to molten gold in his throat. And immediately he goes, I don't want this power anymore. And then he has to undergo this kind of ritual to get rid of it. So we think of Midas really quickly as needing to take control and agency over this ability and indeed, you know, to get rid of it because he can't have control over it. But how come we never thought about Medusa so sympathetically? The first thing that occurred to me when I was writing her chapter in Pandora's Jar is once she's got this power to turn living objects to stone 
then how can she look at anything she loves? And the answer is she can't, she'll kill it. And that's like, well, how could you look at anything you don't love? You can't, you'll kill it. I mean, unless you really, really hate it, you'll kill it. And so suddenly I saw that this thing which I'd always seen described in terms of its destructive power that I should be afraid of, I thought it's not, it's not about destroying other people. It's about, it's robbed her of sight. It's, yeah. it's, it's robbed her of sight forever. And so suddenly that torment that might be central to her character came through to me really quickly. And, and in fact, that is the great moment of choice that she has. She doesn't obviously choose to be cursed with her petrifying or lithifying gaze. She doesn't choose to have snakes for hair, but she can choose not to injure. And that is the choice that I wanted her to be able to make from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. And uh, that whole debate as to who defines what is a monster, a, a monster is defined by their very difference. And yet we see the Gorgons, you know, despite their, their tusks and their snakes for hair and, and their undoubted ability to kill if they so choose, we see them as the most compassionate trio of characters in the book. Yes, they are the family you'd want to grow up with, mm. I think, because Steno and Uriali will always take care of you. They are incredibly affectionate. And it, it's no wonder, I guess, that Medusa doesn't think that a, a monster is what other people think that a, a monster should be, because for her, the things that men call monsters are very much the kindest, most compassionate creatures she knows. When Medusa acquires the ability to turn living creatures to stone, she also suffers a permanent degree of sight loss. And I must say, I thought your handling of the feelings of isolation and loss were spot on. Oh, thank you. Did you talk to people who'd lost their sight or are you as empathetic as a Gorgon? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exactly as empathetic as a Gorgon. Uh, no, I have a cousin who has hearing loss. So I suppose mm -hmm. um, that was partly in my mind. I've written about hearing loss before in my first novel in The Amber Fury. But sight loss, no. It was an act of imagination because it was written in the time of lockdown. And... I was quite ill at the time with long COVID, uh, from which I am now largely better. And I had what I can only describe as crippling migraines. It left me with a condition which meant that I would get a migraine that would not in any way be treatable or combatable for, well, up to, I think my longest one was 29 days. And then I had another that was 24 days. The headaches in this book, the headache where Zeus realises that, or, or discovers, I suppose I should say, that Athene is ready to be born fully formed from his head. And the searing pain that Medusa goes through when she's cursed and she gets her snakes for hair and loses her sight. Those are my headaches. Yeah. And at one point, Zeus literally quotes me talking to my GP when he says it feels as though my teeth are at war with my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that was me saying, I don't know how to treat this because I don't know what to do. And of course, it was incredibly isolating because I was in my home alone. You know, everyone I love was 100 miles away in different directions. I couldn't go to see the doctor because we weren't allowed to and it probably wouldn't have been safe anyway. So yeah, it was a hard way to find that part of the novel. But in retrospect, I don't regret it. 
I was going to say those auras that Medusa sees when she's yes. struggling to see when she goes outside as somebody who's also suffered from migraines, that really rang a bell with me. And it's also something that I've had through my own sight loss. So it, it, it really did chime. Well, I'm really glad because I, I feel you always have to do your research. And I think you have to pay your dues to anything big and physical or emotional like this. And it really mattered to me that people would find the scenes in this book which are really traumatic. The assault on Medusa, the second assault on Medusa, the assault on Athene, and the ravaging of the land of Cassiope, and various other moments in the book. It just mattered to me that they felt real, that they felt true, that although there are lots of, I hope, funny moments in this book, they're not there. You know, it's like, I hope that the juxtaposition makes people feel a bit like with a Greek tragedy where you have the sort of high drama of the scene and then a sort of beautiful lyric ode for the chorus. It's like, that's what I was aiming for, that this tone would constantly be in kind of waves like the ocean and that that's how it would feel to read. And as you say, there are some wonderfully comic moments and characters in there. Cornix the Crow. Oh, I, that was fun to do. Got that, to and do I, a good the, crow impression. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I was writing it, all I was thinking was, I can't wait to do the audiobook <laughs> of this. <laughs> I just can't wait. And, and, you know, again, it comes from Ovid, that particular bit. And I had to check because all the narrators in my book are female because it was supposed to be a way of centering female characters in their story. And I thought, I'm going to have to go and check whether this crow is masculine or feminine. <laughs> and I was like, does it really matter? I mean, grammatical gender isn't the same as sociocultural gender. And I was like, no, I know. But still, though, it would be, I was like, oh, thank God, it is. It's all fine. <laughs> and so, yeah, doing the crow was just, it was genuinely the most fun. Lydia, who produces the audiobooks, we've done the last three together. She's incredibly sort of patient and calm. She's an ultra marathoner. So she has that vibe going on at all times. You can't outrun her. You'll never manage it. Her endurance is forever. I'm always stopping for a Kit Kat or something. But she is just so sweet. When we were having to do the sort of painful scenes, the scenes of assault, the scenes of, you know, characters that we loved experiencing horrible things, we were both like, oh, <laughs> staring at each other through the booth like, oh. And we were building and building to the crow. We knew we would have a ball that day. And I think I'm right to say we left it on the because it was like two chapters away from where we stopped on the second day of recording. And we're like, I can't do this with low energy. I need to build myself up to it. So, yeah, no, I adored. I would happily do an entire book like that, although I think everybody would have uh, (laughs) thrown it across a room by the time I got halfway through. But God, that was so much nice. Snooty olive trees were fun and the crow was fun. I thought the Nereids as well sounded like union conveners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my grandfather was a a union steward. So, yeah, I suppose that's where it comes from. (laughs) They are, they're monstrous. They get so cross when they're even (laughs) remotely wronged. And again, that part of that comes from the fact that there are 50 Nereids. And across our multiple sources, there are about 100 names that, you know, 50 of which you can pick. And I was just sitting here, obviously with a splitting headache, staring at these various different sources like... Oh, my God, how am I supposed to just choose a name from here? And then I thought, oh, imagine if everyone else felt like this. And that's why that chapter is called Anerid, comma, unnamed. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, we can't be bothered to remember their names. So, yeah, once I'd realized that I couldn't work out what what her name was, then I realized how cross she would be with me. And then her voice already existed. So it was very easy. Well, we will come on to talk a bit more about the audiobook version of Stone Blind after the break. 
Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Natalie Haynes about her new book, Stone Blind. Nat, earlier you mentioned Pandora's Jar, your non-fiction collection of essays about women in Greek literature. At the beginning of that, you give a wonderful portrait of how you first got turned on to the classics. You, <laughs> you and your brother sitting on a sofa. Yes, I know the right answer is that I you know, learned Greek myth from the many books of children's myths that we had in my book-filled home. But the truth of the matter is, I did grow up in a book-filled home because my grandmother worked in a bookshop and my mum was an English teacher and my dad a history teacher. But I didn't learn Greek myth from it. I learned it from watching TV, of course, and specifically from watching the film Clash of the Titans, the Ray Harryhausen Clash of the Titans, which came out in 1981. And my mum says I was too small to go to the cinema and see it. So I must have had to wait until it was on TV, because of course, that is what you had to do in those days. You couldn't just stream it somewhere. You had to just sit there and hope someone who ran a TV station wanted to see it as well. And so um, that and Jason and the Argonauts, the Harry House and Jason and the Argonauts from 1963, were basically on, in my memory slash imagination, every single bank holiday Monday <laughs> for my entire life. And one or two Sinbad films cut in for you know maximum delight. And so my first version of Greek myth really was the Harryhausen vision, which is lucky for me because certainly Jason and the Argonauts, lots of it is really drawn from Apollonius of Rhodes's Argonautica. But Clash of the Titans was the one I loved the most. And in all honesty, it is probably because of a bit that isn't even Greek, which is that Perseus gets given a really beautiful clockwork owl. <laughs> I still really want one. I want one more than I can say. <laughs> so he's not allowed to have Athena's owl because she's very protective of it, as she is in all my books. But she does equip him with a, a clockwork owl to sort of companion. And so my version of Medusa was the version in the Harryhausen film. Um, and she has a snaky tail, which, as far as I know, is a Harryhausen innovation. Gorgons in ancient sources tend to have wings, but not a snaky tail. They have snaky hair. Um, and there's an incredible Medusa sculpture from the pediment of the Temple of Artemis at Corfu. In the, it's in the Archaeological Museum of Corfu. Now, it's 13 and a half meters across, so she's vast. And that one has this incredible snake belt. It's unbelievably cool. But the snaky tail, I think that's that's pretty well Harryhausen's. And uh, she's also armed with a bow and arrows, which I think is a Harryhausen invention too. Obviously, we tend to think of both Artemis and the Amazons being armed with bows and arrows, but not Gorgon's. But his version doesn't have wings, so I suppose the bow and arrow is easier for her to hold. And I did wonder why he changed it. But I think the same film has the harpies in and they've got wings. So I, I suspect he just thought he'd already done wings and now he wanted a different different thing to animate. There was an exhibition of Harryhausen stuff in Edinburgh two summers ago, I think. And it was pretty disappointing to find out how tall Medusa was in reality. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's like, oh, okay. Well, that's less scary. Never meet your yeah. heroes. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, the Greek myths are always being reinterpreted. I, I, you yes. say in another one of your books, uh, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, we can learn from the Greek myths that, that the characters there are exactly the same as us. So the human character has not changed in three and a half 
thousand years and we do make the same mistakes yet these stories can constantly be reinterpreted and we can learn things from them yeah i think myth is really a mirror and it shows us the time in which that myth was set down or formalized i suppose so the versions of greek myths that we have have multiple timelines working within them i suppose a good example is the trojan war which happens if it happens probably the late 13th early 12th century. The earliest literary sources we have for uh, Homer, that's late 8th, early 7th century BCE. And then his poems, his epic poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey, are reworked by the tragedians in the 5th century BCE, Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles, all in dialogue with the work of Homer. Aeschylus even says that he considers his plays to be slices from the banquet of Homer, which is a fantastic mm. line. And then those plays are performed and re-performed. Ovid will take these stories on in the first centuries BCE and CE with his Heroides, the Metamorphoses. And then all these texts will be translated into other languages, into English, into French, into German, and then retranslated and retranslated. So by the time we get our hands on a story about the Trojan War, if you pick up a copy of my, whatever it was, 2019 book, A Thousand Ships, it's written in English, but it, it has all those earlier versions are hidden within it somewhere. So my version reflects the time in which I wrote it. It's female-centered because obviously this is when I am alive and this is my field of interest. But it has, it's carrying all those other earlier versions inside it, either, you know, obviously or less obviously. And I think that has to always be true when you kind of encounter a myth, because otherwise you're not really giving it its due, you know? I think it, it deserves that you do at least a bit of research into its earlier iterations, because we do all discover the myths for ourselves. And we all think we're the first people to discover them. And it's like, you probably want to check a few of the things that came before you. And in all honesty, I, the thing I was most surprised about when I wrote A Thousand Ships was that there wasn't already a book in which multiple women narrated the story of the Trojan War. And I sort of felt the same way when I embarked on Stone Blind. I was thinking, somebody must have done this. There must be a, a novel about Gorgons or about Medusa or about the Graii or about the Hesperides or about Danae. Where, where, where are these books? And I think the answer is just that for a very long time, classics was the preserve of, of rich old men and that's tremendous news for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so hooray. <laughs> when did you start questioning the stories that you were being presented that had been passed down for 250 years in English translation? Well, I was really lucky because I started studying Latin at 11 and ancient Greek at 14. It is around about now that someone asks me how many times I had my lunch money during my time at school, and the answer <laughs> is shut up. So I started studying them really young. So I was only 16, I guess, when I first got to read stories of the Trojan War in both Latin. In Aeneid 2 was my GCSE set text, the story of the fall of Troy. And I had, I can't remember if it was the Iliad or the Odyssey for GCSE, Odyssey, I think, the stringing of the bow in Odysseus's great homecoming. And so... I was very lucky that because of brilliant teachers, I could access those stories without that extra layer or multiple layers of translation interpretation. Because for sure, the act of translating something is the act of creating a new book. It, it can't not be. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm very lucky that I got to study the languages and I got to study them young because it's meant that I've always been able to, for, for as long as I can remember anyway, been able to go, well, that's an interesting bit of that story. I wonder where that 
I'm just going to try and track that down. <laughs> I'll be back <laughs> in a minute. And then, you know, digging my way through Ovid or Euripides or Homer or Hesiod or whatever. And then you're like, oh, well, that isn't quite what it says there or there or there or there. And, you know, the example I always give is Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, where there's a horrible sequence. And it's always bothered me. And it is, I'm not the only person that's bothered. It inspired Margaret Atwood to write the Penelope Ad. But the sequence where Telemachus hangs the disloyal slave women from the same length of rope. Mm. And uh, in multiple translations, when I reviewed the Wilson translation, I had about five other versions, both in my flat and uh, online to consult. And literally all of them use pejorative language, the sluts, the slattens, mm. you know, and and the Greek is just the female slaves. That's it. There's no value judgment there at all. It's just the word for slave with the feminine article, the feminine word for the in front of it. And it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a lot of, of undisclosed misogyny we're having to unpick here. Mm. And as you've identified already, I mean, there is no shortage of female characters in Greek mythology, and they are very, very strong characters. They, they are, are, yeah. I mean, even if they're not always given the large number of lines that the Greek male heroes have, they're not silent. No, they certainly aren't. And, and I mean, often in a myth or in a, a tragedy, you find it's the other way around. You know, the Aeschylus play Agamemnon, the lead character in that play is Clytemnestra. She has more mm. lines than he does, and she's there for longer. <laughs> so, <laughs> And also, spoiler, she's still alive at the end. So who's the real winner? Um, but yeah, no, th there are these incredible female roles in Greek tragedy in particular. I think that's one of the reasons it's had such a revival in the last decade, because, you know, finally we're at a point where women aren't expected to disappear from the acting profession when they turn 35. And there just aren't that many roles in the sort of traditional canon for them. The biggest role for a woman in Shakespeare is mm, Rosalind, I think, in As You Like It. But the short answer, I always assume, is if you were given the choice between playing Lady Macbeth or Medea or Hecabe or Clytemnestra, what are you going to say? Mm. I mean, would you rather be the wife of the main character or the main character? So I assume that's one of the reasons we've seen such an upsurge in performances of, of Greek tragedy, because these roles are fantastic and they're right there. The other thing that might come as a surprise is that blindness is not seen as a purely negative thing in Greek myth. Quite often, it can be a provider of insight. And yes. I'm thinking particularly of the wonderful character of Tiresias, the yes. blind seer, who's certainly my favourite blind character in literature. Oh, good shout. Yeah, what a great choice. I mean, he is. it's a really interesting conceit, this phenomenon of the man who can't physically see and yet can comprehend everything that a sighted man cannot. And the great irony in Sophocles's play Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, is that Oedipus, who has perfectly functioning eyes, cannot see who he is and what he has done. And Tiresias, who is blind, can see all of it. And then at the end of the play, spoiler again, Oedipus is so appalled by what he's now come to discover about himself that he removes his own sight because he can't bear to look on the world as the person that he's found that he is. And, you know, for those people who stick around for Oedipus at Colonus, the story of Oedipus in his old age, it is the case that this very, very angry, very clever, but very quick-tempered and paranoid young king 
has become this extremely wise, older man, at least in part because he has had to depend on the next generation, on Ismene or Antigone, his daughters, to take care of him and help him, you know, guide him. He's banished as well as being blinded. Mm. So, you know, he hasn't got familiar landscapes at all to rely on. And there is something very true, I think, in that depiction that sometimes, you know, when we think we're most able to see clearly, in fact, we are at our most blind and vice versa. And Tiresias is a fascinating example. I mean, a, a man who famously spends a few years as a woman because, you know, well, these things sort of happened to him. And so he's changed into, into a woman and then changed back into a man. And the goddess Hera asks him to adjudicate in an argument uh, she's having with Zeus, I know, surprise, about who has the most fun during sex. And I'm sorry, men, feel free to cover your ears. The answer is that women have nine times more pleasure than men in heterosexual sex. And Hera is so furious that <laughs> she promptly curses him for, for revealing this to Zeus. <laughs> like, Dude, I thought you were part of the sisterhood. I was so sure you were going to keep this quiet. But no, snitches away. So yeah, poor old Tiresias. He's, uh, he's in a constant state of flux of uh, being able to see and being blind, being male, being female. So he's often in the right or wrong place uh, at the right slash wrong time, depending on your perspective. But he is a fascinating character. When someone writes his story, I'm buying that book. I'll tell you well, that for nothing. I was going to say, I'm, I'm actually hoping that this is going to be your next book. I mean, I know Virginia uh. <laughs> Woolf wrote Orlando, which was partly inspired by Tiresias. Yeah. But he, he certainly deserves either a book or an episode of Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, we should have done him for the in the mythological years, but unfortunately, those two series, six and seven, were done when we were locked down. So unless I'd already got the books in the flat, because bookshops weren't <laughs> even open in the first one, then we couldn't have it. And because I'm such a raging, obsessed with women person, then obviously we made some programs about women instead. But yeah, no, I'm afraid he won't be my next book, but it's, it's really not a bad shout. Somebody should be doing it, even if I'm not. My next book will be a sequel to Pandora's Jar, so you'll get goddesses in Greek myth is what's coming next from me. Oh, fantastic. And, and how far away is that from completion? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll next be able question. to get it next October, um, which means I've got quite a lot of writing to do. But yeah, you'll get it. It'll be out next October. But I'm not allowed to tell you the title, which is driving me mad, but I'm not allowed to until the new year, apparently. Soaks. Okay, well, this will be going out in the new year, so I shall. Okay, <laughs> I need to take my room black. Yeah, so that's how I feel. <laughs> anyway, but that will be next. So yes, will you be narrating it as well? I hope so. Yeah, I did the first one, and it sold mm. pretty well. So yeah, I think probably I will. It's a it's a point that I I didn't expect to enjoy doing it in the way that mm. I did. I read my books aloud as I write them and I read them aloud as I edit them. A friend of mine who teaches creative writing says it's the most given and least heeded advice in creative writing is read it aloud because that's when not only you notice the typos and the mistakes but you also get a sense of the rhythm of it and the you know poetry of it and if you're you know landing that sentence in the wrong place and so on. And so by the time I do the audiobook recording, it's a, probably the fourth or fifth time I've read the whole book aloud. And so it always feels like I've, I'm really ready to do it. And yet at the same time, I'm always really conscious that I'm not an actor, you know, and I think audiobooks sort of exist in a, an in-between space where you want something between like a stage reading of a book and a bedtime story. 
And so I'm always giving it the most I've got, but I am aware that I have limitations in terms of things like accents. But yeah, I figured, you know, who was ever going to enjoy being a crow more than me? Not anyone, (laughs) not even an actual crow, probably. So yeah, now I hope so. And I should say there is a large print version of Stoneblind coming if it hasn't already, but I will keep doing the audiobooks and I'll keep making the radio. So I promise there will still be audio <laughs> material coming. Well, I find it a real treat to be able to listen to the audiobook. And part of it is because quite often when you've got a narrator reading somebody else's books, some of the jokes fall flat. I was talking to Kevin J. Anderson about this recently. He's, he's re-recording one of the series of his books because the narrator just didn't see the jokes. Oh, no. God. And there's, there's no risk of that in your books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I do love performing a joke. I can't deny it. And, you know, sometimes I think I'm I'm probably giving them less than their due because I love a thrown away joke. There is nothing I like more than a joke that only three people in a room will get because everybody else wasn't listening properly. And it's such a childish thing to like, and yet I do. And so the audiobooks are a really nice place for me to to be able to do that because you're right, I get to perform all of it, the kind of sly bits of narration that undercut things and the sort of outright jokes in dialogue. And it is, it's really fun to do. I felt quite, quite worried when we did A Thousand Ships was the first one that I did because it's so many voices. And I thought, well, I, I can't give you a different voice for each of those. And as it turned out, it didn't really matter. You know, people, people didn't really want that. They wanted the sort of emotional truth of it more than anything else. There are passages in that book where I can hear you were just teetering on the edge of tears. Oh, I fell apart. Yeah. doing that one yeah Andromache and A Thousand Ships just killed me I cried when I wrote it I cried when I edited it I am audibly crying you're right in the audio book and then Stone Blind I held it together really well uh, for ages <laughs> <laughs> I was doing so bravely and then Lydia my producer who is as I say the calmest woman alive says oh, I don't know how we're going to do this last bit because when I read it I cried and I was like oh yeah no me too but hopefully we'll be fine. Oh, yeah, we'll try. If we have to stop, we'll stop. And so, and I went into the studio to do it. And I have the pages in front of me. And they're printed pages so that you don't hear the sound of me turning pages as I go along. And I, I did the whole of the last chapter, which is really spare and sad, I think, mm-hmm. in one take. And I was like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. And I looked up and I was all ready to go to Lydia. Look, I did it. And I'm not crying. And all the tissues were in my bit of the studio. And I had to stop so I could take her a box of tissues around. I'm like, I'm really sorry. She was going, it's all right. So I had to give her a big hug. So, yeah, I am sorry in advance to people who have, have yet to be made miserable by my books. I, I, for what it's worth, they make me cry too. Sadly, this recording too must come to an end, but before we do, here's a bonus question that we didn't have time to include in the radio broadcast, especially for our podcast listeners. So one of the things that I did think that I knew about Perseus's story was about Pegasus, the flying horse. What did you do with the flying horse? I'm afraid Pegasus isn't... I mean, this is a really specific piece of information that I actually took out of my book because I couldn't make it fit. But Pegasus is born from the severed neck of Medusa, along with Chryseor, a golden giant. And although it means I have deprived Medusa of her maternal role in this book, I felt like I was asking a bit much, probably, of an audience who don't know this part of the story. And it's not a particularly well-known part of the story, after Mm. all, to say, oh yeah, by the way, and when she's killed, she gives birth through her neck. 
Um, <laughs> it just felt like a step too far. It's like I'm, I'm trying to humanize this Gorgon, not make her more strange and other. So, yeah, I'm afraid I took the, the role of motherhood away from her. But Pegasus is, in most of our ancient sources, uh, his father is Poseidon, his mother is Medusa, and as I say, he is born through her severed neck. Um, but that's not a part of the story I can include. But if you want to see a really good version of it, I send you back to the Archaeological Museum in Corfu because that pediment from the Temple of Artemis shows Medusa in her full power, so not at this point decapitated, somewhat confusingly because she is flanked by Chryseor, the golden giant, and Pegasus. And although the um, sculpture is made of sandstone, I think, so it's quite soft. It hasn't survived tremendously well, but you can see the head of one and the, the foreleg and the, <laughs> and the winged back of Pegasus on the other side. So yeah, so in, in that unusual version, you get Medusa and Pegasus and Chryseor simultaneously. But poor old Chryseor has basically just been, he's not as cool as a flying horse. That's the truth of the matter. A golden giant is, you're like, wow, a golden giant next to a winged horse. No one's interested in the golden giant. <laughs> what about the winged horse? Take the winged horse every day. Well, yeah. well thank you for clearing that one up. My pleasure. Now, before we ride off into the sunset, Nat, I hope you'll share some of the books that have resonated with you through your life with the books of your life. Well, yes, I will. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Now it's time to share the books of Natalie Haynes's life. Nat, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Two. Uh, number one is The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. It's the second of her, I think it's five books in total, but it may be six. I'm hopeless at this sort of thing. And they are just, they're all lovely. The first is Oversea Under Stone, I think, and the third is Greenwich, and then The Silver on the Tree is the last one. And they are just gorgeous. She grew up, I think, in the UK. She moved to the States. And Dark is Rising is set in, I think, Buckinghamshire, and it's winter. So this is, you know, the, the sort of ultimate Christmas book, as far as I'm concerned. Will is the seventh son of a seventh son, and his birthday is coming up. and He's about to discover something extraordinary about himself, both that he is incredibly special, but also that he is about to be in enormous danger. And so will everyone he loves be. And it is such a, a beautiful world. It's just the most gorgeous book. And the other ones that got me more than I think even I realized at the time are the Lloyd Alexander uh, books, the Chronicles of Prydain, and the the first, the second maybe was adapted as a, a crummy Disney film in my childhood called The Black Cauldron. But they're just lovely. They're set in a sort of fictionalized version of Wales, Pridainers, Wales. And there's an oracular pig and there's a brave pig keeper and a princess who has a kind of crystal ball. And um, in terms of things that have ever left me literally ruined and weeping on the floor, the sequence where Fludor, who is a sort of a wandering minstrel with a, a harp that won't allow him to tell tall tales, where he has to decide what he will sacrifice in order to keep them alive at, at one very cold night during a storm. I can't even, I'm almost crying now just telling you that much about it. I can't discuss it anymore. <laughs> it is such an incredible piece of writing. So those are my recommendations to you. Susan Cooper, Lloyd Alexander. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? 
Oh, Tales of the City, Armistead Morpen, every single time. My mom used to say that the reason I didn't like sharing a house with my housemates at the time was because what I really wanted to do was live in Barbary Lane with Mrs. Madrigal. And that is entirely true. <laughs> I would really like to live in Barbary Lane with Mrs. Madrigal. I would still like that. I can't really imagine anyone reading Tales of the City and not wanting to go and live in Barbary Lane with Mrs. Madrigal. So yeah, I think that sense of a family that you find in your life and a family that finds you what uh, Morpen coined your logical family for the family that you make as you go through your life rather than the one that you grow up with. And it, it's just such a gorgeous notion that we're all, you know, in the process of building our own families as we move through life all the time. Yeah, that's always my rainy day read. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I am currently reading, I'm getting this off the shelf so you can hear the rustle, uh, know that I'm telling the truth. I'm currently reading Nikita Gill's Great Goddesses, um, which is poems about goddesses, um, especially Greek ones. Um, So there is Medusa in here, there is Circe. I've been looking at her poems on Athene and Artemis, and I'm just loving it. So I very much recommend it. It's also a gorgeous edition if you were looking to buy somebody a book as a present. Mine has a beautiful kind of foil embossed cover. So I'm just letting you know, it's sparkly. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Natalie Haynes, thank you so much for sharing so much insight into the world of Greek myth and also for sharing your love of reading with us today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Natalie Haynes, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.